Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming uh, to the Commons People Fringe. Commons People is the podcast of HuffPost UK. And I'm delighted to be joined by a man who's very very rarely gives interviews, he's quite a quiet man, it's very difficult to know what he thinks about things, he's not one to prone to sort of, you know, rambling stories and that kind of thing, so uh, the MP for Braintree, James Cleverley. Thanks for that, mate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, thank you. You're going to be Prime Minister then, according to your latest interview with Politics Home? Uh, I'd like to be, I'd like to be, I'm not saying I will be. I'm not even saying I should be, um, but uh, I was asked in that interview, I was asked a specific question, and the question was, would you like to be Prime Minister? And I said, yes, I would like to be Prime Minister. And I would imagine that most members of Parliament uh, would like to be Prime Minister. You get I think into Theresa May wants to be Prime Minister. <laughs> I think Theresa did an amazing thing after the general election result. Because the, the, easy, the easy thing would be to say, oh, that didn't work out well, uh, really, really sorry, uh, I, can't, I can't continue having you know, uh, uh, not got the mandate that I'd hoped for the general election and, 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 and walked. That, that would have been the easy thing. But she's got an, she's got an amazing sense of duty... And she is doing the tougher thing, which is actually to stick it out and make it right. Um, and I'm, I would never, ever, ever criticise someone for doing the morally right, tougher decision. Is she enjoying every minute of it? I would be willing to put a lot of money on the fact she's not enjoying every minute of it. But actually, I don't think you should, um, I don't think you should assume that just because it's not, um, I don't know, pick a metaphor at random, like skipping through... A field of wheat. Uh, well, that well-known pastime. No, I mean, I, am I the only one that at the end of that sentence appended the word naked? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say, out of the two of us, yes, you're the only one. But you, just, but you expressed your love or and or desire for Theresa before, haven't you? Admiration. In fact, she, no, called, she called you out, didn't she? That she did. Meeting. She did. She, didn't she blow you a kiss? Or was that... uh, no, it was, it, was, it was a little bit more... Uh, so, um, so some of you might not have been aware that I did Snob Marry Avoid on, uh, on John Pienaar's show. And when given the choice... Is that the background music? <laughs> so, when, um, so when given the, given the choice uh, of Theresa May, I said, Snog, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Tory. We've got a thing about you know, strong, powerful women. And, um, and I, said, I said, Snog. And, uh, and then, as luck or otherwise would have it, the, uh, the then Home Secretary, uh, Theresa May, was addressing the 1922 committee on that Wednesday, so a couple of days after the interview. And um, 
she gave her speech and she was taking questions from the Tory backbenchers. Uh, and, and I was I was in the room. I wasn't very far away from her. I was only about maybe 15 feet away from where she was standing. I thought I need I can't just let this hang because I don't know whether she found it funny or whether she was insulted by it. I I can't just. You know, I didn't want there to be friction between us, you know? So, um... What the whole point was you didn't want there to be friction between oh, us? Oh, get... Oh, stop it. <laughs> I won't do it if it's smutty. I won't do it if it's smutty. Which is what I said to... Uh, no. Yeah. Um, so, uh, So, I can't... I, I, I decided I was going to ask some home affairs question. I stood up, and Graham Brady, who's the chairman, said, James Duffy. I said, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, home Secretary, massive fan, as you know. And when I said that, the whole room went, ooh. <laughs> and then she said, oh, do you want to come a little bit closer? And then the whole room went, ooh. I thought, oh, girl, have you got a side to you? You've got to admire that, haven't you? You've got to admire that. That's what, that's what this country needs. Inappropriate flirting with yeah. <laughs> Carrying on the Prime Minister. Car- yeah. Yeah. I mean, literally. Okay. Yeah, yeah, literally. Um, carry on, Prime Minister. You've always been someone who's been very, tried to be very, very loyal to your leaders, um, even though they make it quite difficult. And you were very loyal to David Cameron, weren't you? You were a big fan. Of yeah, that you, used him, you used to call him the boss, didn't you? He was the boss man. Mm. What used to call him? He was the boss. He was the boss. He was the Prime Minister. He was the boss. Now I've got a new boss. He's the boss. How disappointed were you with the Brexit deal that he came back with from Brussels? <laughs> Well, I was you just, really wanted him to get something, didn't you? you really I did, I did. And I was, really, I was really torn. And actually, I came out for Brexit. It, I, I did an op-ed with a couple of colleagues on the first day back at work in January, so before he'd actually come back. And I got a bit of, I got a bit of stick from some friends and colleagues uh, about that. And, the, and the, the reason was I'd given it some thought over the Christmas break, and I realised that, hand on heart even if he had come back with absolutely everything he had asked for, actually I knew, for me, it it wasn't enough for me to campaign for Remain. And I'm sure that what I'm about to say will trip me up horribly at some point, probably even before the end of this interview. I, I try as far as possible to be completely honest and to be honest as early as possible. And when I realised that, in good conscience, I could not campaign for Remain based on what he was asking for, I thought there's no point in in maintaining this illusion that, depending on what he came back with, um, I might might change my mind on that. So uh, I went public in January. I said, you know, it's with a heavy heart. Uh, I still rate him enormously as as a prime minister. I still do the transformation that he was instrumental in driving through the party, both in opposition and in government, I think is incredibly important. And unfortunately, and this saddens me, I, I fear it will be completely overshadowed by that last six, 12 months in office through the referendum campaign and, and then when he stood down. And I think that um, hopefully history will remember the huge list of really positive things he did for the party and the country and not just the fact that you know he he didn't win the referendum that he thought he was going to win and felt he had to stand down. I think that's that's a shame. But you know, I I, I came out. I was um, I was honest at the first point. I thought you know this is this is where my mind is made up. Someone who took a bit longer to come out was another person you worked for, Boris. Of course, you worked with him on the London Assembly. Yeah. 
What, what's it like working with Boris and his London mayor? It's exciting. Yeah. Yes, isn't it? In a good way? <laughs> yeah, no, gen- genuinely, genuinely in a good way. He's, um, look, he's an unbelievably clever guy. Is and he? He is unbelievably clever, believe it or not. Unbelievably clever. And I got caught out early on um, because, because the way Boris carries himself, I mean, he is the scruffiest grown-up <laughs> I have ever met. But we went on a walkabout, and I was uh, at one point, and I will get to my answer in a minute, and at one point, we were, we were walking down, it's Bromley High Street, I remember, uh, Bromley High Street, and I was walking behind him, and he was chatting to local paper journalists, great people, local, local journalists, local paper journalists, great, they go on to great things, um, be kind to me. <laughs> um, and as, as he was walking along, I noticed that the sole of one shoe had a leather sole, and the sole of the other shoe had a rubber sole, and I was thinking... Why, why would you replace, why would you take a pair of shoes in and replace one sole but not both? And I realised that one was an Oxford and the other one was a Brogue. <laughs> and they were two halves of a different pair of shoes. <laughs> Adults don't do that. <laughs> My kids do that sometimes, but grown-ups don't do that. And so because of that, and because, yeah, because he's scruffy and because he's slouchy, and I've, t- I've told him more often than I've told my children to stand up straight. And what does he say? And take your hands out of your pockets. He goes, God, yes, no, James, you're right, you're right. Before slouching and burying his hands back in his pockets. During the 2008 mayoral campaign, um, uh, Joe Tanner and uh, 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 Katie Perrier, who were doing his PR, bought him a new suit to look smart. And they, they didn't unpick. You know the little stitching in the pocket? They didn't unpick. And if you look back at footage during the campaign, you'll watch Boris going like this, shaking his head and kind of blah, 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 and then doing, and then doing that. <laughs> as, he, as he doesn't, as he's unable to put his hands in his pockets. So, so he, he's, he's scruffy and he's slouchy and that kind of stuff. And quite often when you're in meetings, he shuts his eyes and leans back um, and to all intents and purposes looks as if he's going to sleep. And I remember I gave him a briefing, and I was doing youth policy at the time, and I gave him a briefing on a plan that I was going to do and as I say, he didn't really say anything. His head lolled back. Uh, and I genuinely thought he was asleep. Uh, but I definitely thought he wasn't paying attention. And during the rollout of the, of the project, it, you know, it, it, as things do, uh, it didn't quite go exactly how I thought it was going to do. So we adapted it midway through. We changed it and it improved. That was great. And about six months later, I was giving him an update briefing. Um, and he said, well, you, hang on, you changed that. We didn't, that's not what we discussed, though, was it? And six months after my initial briefing to him, a briefing that I assumed he had slept through, he pulled me up for making a change without running it past him. And you don't do that by being daft. He puts across this persona. I think he's, it's now so hard-coded into his psyche, he's never going to stop doing that. But there are a list of people who have thought that they could comfortably and easily outsmart him whose careers, whose political careers are now over, including Ken Livingston, etc. Um, and he's currently foreign secretary. So what I would say is underestimate him at your peril um, because he's a very, very smart and very effective operator, um, maybe because or despite of his total inability to dress himself. <laughs> you said there that he got annoyed that you were going to change something, or but you, but you hadn't run, you hadn't run past you. Not annoyed, no, not, not annoyed, not annoyed. That, that's probably the wrong word. Um, he was curious. He pulled me up on it. Yeah, he pulled you up on it. He pulled me up on it. So, 
with that in mind, his recent interventions, what do you make of them? Because the criticism has been that he's made these interventions without running them past the Prime Minister first. Well, I don't know, uh, none of us know the, the conversations that happen uh, in private behind closed doors. We get, obviously, we get very truncated um, cabinet minutes and we see what happens in public, but we don't know all the conversations that happen in private. And I'm not, I'm not going to speculate, but, you know, if, uh, Boris has got a vision of Brexit. All of us have got a particular view of how Brexit should roll out. We all are trying to deliver the ultimate goal, which is a Brexit that works for the British people. We have all got slightly different interpretations of what that means. And we are all trying to, in whatever way we can, influence what's happening to deliver what we believe is best for Britain. Is this the, best, is this the right way for Boris to do it, though? Boris coming out, giving interviews, putting out new red lines. Surely that should be done, like you said, in private conversations. Doing it through the Sun and the Telegraph is not the way to conduct government business. Or is it? I don't think it is as unhelpful as I think some people interpret it as being. And I, don't, I genuinely don't believe that Boris is trying to be unhelpful. He's, he's, he is articulating, and, and actually having read through what he's saying, he is pretty much articulating what is, what is government policy. He, his position that he's making clear is that he would like it to be at the, of the, of the spectrum uh, of options that the Prime Minister laid out in the Florence speech. He is... Um, championing you know, the tighter end of that spectrum of options and there'll be other people who are going to champion um, the other end of that spectrum but it's worth remembering that there isn't there's not a huge variation between say Boris's position and you, you know um, other other people in cabinet um, who are, are who campaign for uh, remain or whatever that there's not, a, there's not a massive differential between them. And uh, I don't know, I'm not going to say whether it's the best plan or not. It's not necessarily how I would do it. But, you know, Boris has always, has always used his, his writing skills to, to push, you know, his ideas forward. And actually, I think with the people that we're negotiating with, it's no bad thing to know that there is a strong constituency of people in the UK who are still very keen to have a much... I hate the word hard Brexit, but you know, to have a, a you know a much uh, tighter and quicker Brexit process than than others. And where, if do, where do you sit on that? Because you were obviously quite prominent in the Brexit campaign. You were involved in vote leave. You gave speeches. Yeah. Where are you now, though? Because some people looked at that Florence speech and thought, actually, this is Theresa May making it more of a soft Brexit. We've got the transition now. We might have to debate to, on the new ECJ laws or directives that come out. I mean, that wasn't. Something she was talking yeah. about in, in the Lancaster House speech. Are you disappointed? No, I, 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 my view on this is that it's taken us, what, 45 years? How long have we been in? 45 years? When did we go? 73? So 44 years. So it's taken us 44 years to get where we are. If it takes us another 18, 24, 28 months to leave the EU in good order, then I'm comfortable we take a bit of time to get it right. Um, and the reason I'm comfortable with that is because 
the foundation stone upon which all these other variations are built is that we are leaving the EU, we are leaving the single market, we are leaving the customs union, we are leaving the ECJ, and we are repatriating uh, uh, British laws. For me, that's it. That's cool. And all the other variables, what some people describe as soft Brexit, hard Brexit, people are saying, well, you know, what we should do is we should negotiate some kind of um, payment to stay in the single market, uh, sorry, to, to, to replicate single market membership or whatever. My view is like, yeah, yeah, all these debates we can have in the future because once we leave the EU, these become domestic political decisions yeah. in the same way that education policy, health policy, defence policy are decisions of the British government. And a future Labour government will make policy in those areas that I fundamentally disagree with. And I'll campaign to kick them out and replace them with a Conservative government, if that's what it takes. So I can change, I can be part of the team, changing those policies back to where I think they should be. And once we leave the EU, immigration policy, trade policy, uh, agricultural policy, fishing policy, these will become British parliamentary policies. And we can sort them out, as we do with everything else, as the process of being elected, unelected, re-elected happens. That's the way it should be. That's what I can be. It's a good point to go on uh, to domestic policy. When I uh, mentioned to people that I was doing this thing with you, a lot of young conservatives got very excited because they see you, for some God knows why reason, as a sort of voice of the youth. <laughs> Someone said it, to me, your Twitter game's on point, which I believe is a good thing. <laughs> Do you know what I love about my party, the Conservative Party? It's where a 48-year-old is thought about being the voice of the youth. That's, <laughs> that's, what, I love. that's what I love about the Conservative Party. Um, this conference has been, I mean, looking at all the fringes, there's been a real drive to try and understand what young people, this strange group who've never really thought before, what they actually think. And we're all waiting for Theresa May's big announcement on this, and it seems to be helped to buy, which is, you know, and, and a little bit of tinkering on tuition fees. Surely that's not enough, is it? When you're competing with Jeremy Corbyn, you want to give everyone free unicorns or whatever. Uh, that's, yeah, the free unicorn. Are we gonna, we're going to struggle to match the free unicorn yeah, for free every year. Uh, no, you see, that's the kind of, that's the kind of, because um, it isn't unicorn. We joke about that. The policy was owls, wasn't it? If that I was under Ed Miliband. Was yeah. it Ed Miliband? Yeah. Oh, oh, no, it's behind the No, look, um, I think, first of all, we've got to earn the right to be listened to before we worry too much about what we're saying. Now, we, we, we've, we are in government. The Conservative Party is in government. Now, this may be a shock to Len McCluskey, and, uh, but we won the election. They didn't. We are in government. It's not where we wanted to be in terms of the numbers of parliamentarians, but we are in government. And so we've got to get on with the boring, mundane, day-to-day -day stuff of running government. But... We have, we have now got a bit of time, I think, to make some changes at a philosophical level. And it's, it's nice that, um, that people think or feel that I connect with uh, younger people. That's great. Um, I think the reason why, and it goes back to where we started, I think the reason why is because I've decided, in fact, it wasn't even a conscious decision, it's just, I suppose, a, a habitual thing, to be as open and as straight uh, and, and as honest <coughs> as is practically possible. And there are times when that's got me in a little bit of trouble. John Pienaar interview, 
uh, and, and other things. Let's not go there. Um, so there, there are times when it's, it's caused a little bit of short-term difficulty. But I think increasingly, and it's not just young people, I think increasingly people expect and demand that the people in public life are just more open and accessible and more human and less buttoned up. And I think that is not an age thing. And Corbyn proves that. So Corbyn connects with the young, not because he is young, because clearly he isn't, but because, particularly during the leadership campaign, when all the other candidates were doing this kind of, on the one hand this, and on the other hand that, and maybe, but, if, but then I wouldn't unless of course I could. He just went, yes, no, bang, bang, bang. Now, a lot of the things he said, I believe, are complete and utter garbage. But he believes them, and people know he believes them. And that was his appeal. The challenge he's got, actually is he's increasingly showing that he's willing to U-turn on all kinds of stuff. Now, at the moment, he's still riding on a high, and people aren't noticing it, but, you know, all those, all those people chanting his name at Glastonbury are going to be really pissed off when they realise that he three-line whipped a Brexit vote. And some of that shine's going to come off, because actually he's stopped, he's increasingly moving away from the thing that he was, which is, which is you know, direct and open and honest. And I hope that I don't do that, there is always a danger that you do. I hope that I don't. But, you know, at the moment I'm a backbencher. I've got a bit more liberty and space. But I hope that more people in, 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 in my party get in the habit of just saying what they think. You know? Do you think that it's not just the case that the Tories need to have a sort of honest conversation with younger voters, like you said there, about why you feel that Jeremy Corbyn's policy wouldn't work? policies wouldn't work, but they need to have an honest conversation with older voters as well, the Tories, about how you perhaps need to rebalance the economy, how perhaps, yes, we need to build more houses, that means your house price not, might, might not increase as much, and the implications of that. Is that something the Conservatives need to do? Well, uh, the thing is, when, when, you're, when, you're, uh, yeah, when you're being um, straight-talking and, and you know, brutally honest or whatever, you you don't need to target that at, at particular voter groups. Um, because actually, a, a lot of the issues that we're going to have to deal with, or that all governments deal with, are not particularly focused on younger people or older people or men or women or whatever. They're, they're, they're pretty universal. Um, and there are certain truths which are unpalatable, but they are nevertheless true. So, for example, let's take the public sector pay cap. Um, the reason that that pay cap has been in place for, I think, much longer than anyone in government had expected or had wanted is because the rate of deficit reduction has taken the, the, uh, longer than we had hoped. I think we should be completely straight with that and just say, look, this is not how we envisaged it. But, dear British people, you need to understand that to reduce the deficit quicker would have been more painful we would have had to cut further and faster in public spending to reduce the deficit. And this is why I think it's so sickeningly hypo uh, you know, hypocritical of the Labour Party to both criticise public sector spending restraint and at the same time criticise the fact we haven't reduced the deficit. Because you can, you can argue for one or the other, but not both. And I think we need to... We need to be straight. Say, look, we could have reduced the deficit quicker. In Ireland, they reduced their deficit much quicker. And it was brutal. It really 
really hurt. So yes, we made a political decision. And the political decision that we made, uh, initially under George Osborne and now under Philip Hammond, is not to be as brutal in our spending reductions as we might otherwise have been. That was the political decision. Labour say oh, austerity is a, a political decision. Actually, not being as austere as we might have been, that was the political decision. And I think we should be on the front foot about this. I think we should say that we could have cut harder and faster, and it would have hurt. And maybe now we could have, we're in a position where we could have turned the public sector spending tap up a little bit. But would trust you like, me... Would you, you like to see that? Of course we'd like to see that. I mean, Would you, you personally would like to see that? I like, well, this is where I'm going to caveat what I'm going to say, because no one goes into, no one goes into politics to make anyone's life harder. And without a shadow of a doubt, there are a load of people in the public sector whose, whose, whose lives today are harder than they were seven years ago. And that is because we have had to restrain public spending. Fact. We didn't, we're not doing it because we wanted to make their lives harder. We, wanted to, we did it because we wanted to stop the British economy going off a cliff. That's, what, that's the thing we wanted. And as soon as we were in a position to ease that pressure, that's what we would want to do. But you can't do it in a way that would then jeopardise the British economy. And one of, I think, the fair criticisms that we have to you know, uh, uh, take on board is we never explain that to people. And when I went to vote... I was in my, my village up in Essex that I live in. And I was coming out of the polling station, and a young woman was just about to come in. And she stopped me. She went, oh, you're the MP, aren't you? And I said, hi, I'm James Clever. We had a chat. And, uh, sorry, no, the other way around. She was coming out. I was about to go in. And, um, and I half-jokingly went, ha-ha, did you vote for me? And she kind of went, ha-ha. <laughs> I went, you didn't vote for me, did you? And she went, Oh, sorry. And I went, well, you're kidding. I went, jokingly. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I went, you're kidding. It was your wife, right? So I said, I can't believe you didn't vote for me. And, and, and her, her response really hit me hard. She went, I'm a nurse. That was all she felt she needed to say to explain why she didn't vote Conservative. And when it gets to the stage where... You know, the Labour Party, uh, I, can't remember who, I can't remember which one of them was that said this. He's, you know, uh, Ken Loach said the Conservatives are being intentionally cruel and they're doing this because they like it. Oh. Now, you, we all know that's absolute bollocks. But what worries me is there are a load of people out there who are believing that kind of crap. And well, that's how, awful. Yeah, so how do you counteract that? Then? Because that message you're sitting out now, that works on a kind of common sense level. People would agree with that. But there's not. Wh- how do you get the emotive message out, particularly to voters who are under 45? Because mm. so, basically, your message is: Look, you think this hurt, Mum? We could have really hurt you. That's not like a great <laughs> message. I mean, it might be true. It might be true, but it's not a great message, no, right? So, so the analogy. Okay, give it a different analogy. Who, who, you, if um, if you get beaten up, right? Yeah. It's not a threat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> What other questions you got? <laughs> like, yeah. So if you if someone if, if one if someone gets beaten up yeah. and gets taken to hospital, okay, that is a less comfortable place than being at home. Yeah? So who do you blame for being a less comfortable place? Do you blame the people in the hospital trying to make you better or the person that beat you up? 
Okay? So to stretch that analogy to breaking point, we have had to, we have had to administer some bitter medicine over the last seven years because of actions that the Labour governments took. And I think it's really unfair, you know, sound like one of my kids, oh, that is unfair. So we're getting the blame for fixing the problem the Labour Party created. But you know what? That has always been the role of the Conservative Party <laughs> government. And we just need to get better at explaining that we are doing these things because the Labour Party screwed up. Again. And just in case you think that maybe a slightly different version of the Labour Party might not screw up, that's what the left always do. That is their, that is their cosmic role in life, to screw things up so that we can come along and fix them. Because wherever and whenever there has been a left-wing government in office, they've screwed it up. And the further left they are, the more they've screwed it up. So when you go to the very, very, very far left, people die in their millions. That's what the hard left does. The least, the less left-wing they are, the less damage they do. And so people aren't starving to death or being brutalised or sent to gulags in France under Hollande. But it was pretty crappy. That's why all the French people came here. The far left murders people on an industrial scale. And I can't understand why we've been so reticent at reminding people the left screw it up without fail every time, put money on it, because it's a guaranteed, it's, it's guaranteed they'll do so. You say you don't remind people, but that was a large part of the Tories' election campaign, wasn't it? It was Corbyn will ruin the country. Yeah. Again, where's the positive... Just finally, where's the positive... What do you say to that nurse now? What do you say to young people now? To the 30-year-old well, now who's in, you know... Well, so uh, I, think, I think the message we need to put across is, is increasingly now... We, the, you know, the deficit has been reduced massively. The reason we're able to just start easing the public spending... Uh, restraint is because the economy is in a significantly better place than it was when, the, when, when we took over. And we've got to remind people that there is an opportunity for some really wonderful things in the future. That there is an opportunity for the UK to be a global player, to use international trade both to uh, uh, enhance and enrich the lives of British people, but also enhance and enrich the lives of people overseas that we're trading with, particularly in some of the poorest countries in the world. I think we could and should do much more trade with. I think there's an opportunity to really embrace things like the technological revolution. There's an opportunity to embrace uh, artificial intelligence. There's an opportunity for the UK to be a global leader in a whole load of sectors, um, uh, uh, aerospace, pharmaceutical. Uh, you know, there are loads of things that we could do, loads of things that we could do. And we have wanted to be able to do those things earlier, but we've been hampered because of the financial situation that we inherited. We've, we've, we've waded through the shit, and we are just getting to the point where we can start doing great things. So, so there's, always, there's always a balance. There's, there's, there should be both dark and light in every, in every story. So, so the light is there is a great opportunity, and work with us, and we can, help, we, can, we can deliver that great opportunity, both for the country as a whole and for you as an individual. But the counterbalance is... This is absolutely the worst time to put the most left-wing government or the most left-wing Labour Party that this country has ever seen, ever seen, in charge of the government. Because what they'll do is just when we're, just when we're getting out of the mire, they'll turn us around and march us straight back into it.
So there is, there's got to be positive, there's got to be light. In the last general election, it was all negative and not enough positive. I think we've learned our lesson from that. There will be more positivity. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I think there is a fantastic, a fantastic future ahead of us. Otherwise, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be Prime Minister of it, would I? <laughs> <coughs> uh, as I'm sure you are all regular listeners to the Commons People podcast. And one of the things we do in the podcast, we do a quiz every week, which I normally knock together about 30 seconds before we record it. And this week's no different. And I described your Twitter game as being on point earlier on to James Leatherly. Oh, no. So I'm going to read out some tweets, and I want you to tell me if uh, I want the audience to tell me if these are tweets from James Cleverly or Richard Maidley. Because <laughs> it kind of rhymes, Cleverly and Maidley. Okay? Yeah? With me on this? My worry is I'm not. I'm not even sure I'll get all these. Oh, here we go. Let's go. So is this James Cleverly or Richard Maidley? <clears throat> Sausage casserole in the oven and X Factor on the telly box. Is that Richard Maidley? Hands up for Maidley. Hands up for Cleverly. It was James Cleverly. On the <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, mate. I was about to say, I know this one. It wasn't me. Was that me? Okay. Uh, here we go. Here we go. You've never had broccoli jam. You've never had broccoli jam. Is that uh, James Cleverly? Yeah, it sounds like James. Or was that Richard Maidley? Richard Maidley. Richard Maidley. Richard Maidley. 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 James? It was you in a tweet <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to, to Sally Burko <laughs> <laughs> on t- in the 12th of January 2012. I went way back, mate. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Broccoli jam is a euphemism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Filthy. Well, which bit? You like this one then? There seem to be a hundred different ways to poach an egg, judging by all the tweets of the last ten minutes. Great stuff. Was that Richard Maidley? Who thinks Richard Maidley? Yeah, who thinks James Cleverly? No, that was Richard Maidley. Thank God for that. Whatever you may have read about Meryl Streep as Thatcher, trust me, it won't have done her justice. For once, I don't have the words. James. Did you do that? No, that was Richard Maiden. <laughs> uh, finally, have to pause the discussion now. I have a leaky toilet system that needs fixing. <laughs> that was you, James, to uh, stop City Airport. Oh, God, yeah. So you were getting an argument again, weren't you? He's, he's eager. He's keen and eager. And, um, yeah, I, re- I remember thinking there's two things I could do. I could continue this discussion with this guy or I could fix a toilet. <laughs> it wasn't even close. Yeah, it wasn't even close call. This is, one, this, is my, this is by you, this is one of my favourites. You sent this on Christmas Day 2011, so you must have been a great day. Just listen to the little mixed version of Cannonball, sad face. Is it X Factor's mission to crucify every great ballad in music history? <laughs> There's a lot of X Factor tweets in the game. I stand by that. There's a lot of X Factor tweets. I absolutely so stand by that. So that was uh, Cleverly or Maidly? Cleverly. Mate. You like that, didn't you? I would have liked it more if there was a theme tune. Yeah, well, yeah, get that on. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, any questions for James before we, we uh, hold up? This gentleman here, should I? Oh, God, here we go. Uh, thank you. Um, so, going back to almost one of the first points, colleagues on the green benches, um, Stomp, Harry, and Boyd. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, my, when, I did this, when I did this first time round, uh, my wife was a bit angry with me. 
And I thought she was angry with me because, you know, I engaged in this. And she was angry with me because it was such an obviously... She said, no, it's really obvious. Snobbery to Aura, married Prime Minister, and the boy's a lefty. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's... That would have been a really smart answer. So colleagues on the green benches... Um, uh, Johnny Mercer. Oh, mate, have you seen the shower scene? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mate, I would so smash that. I really... Oh, you'd, you'd definitely be... I would be totally willing to be quite gay if Johnny, if Johnny Mercer was involved. He's, he's a, I think I just heard Jacob Rees-Mogg has that half he's, of that. Um, <laughs> so snob Johnny. Yeah. Marry... I'd marry Theresa, because yeah. she's a Prime Minister, you can't do snogging with a Prime Minister. Marry the Prime Minister. And uh, avoid, avoid... Oh, oh yeah. no, Laura, Laura Pidcock, because she wants to... Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. um, she just sounds like not a lot of fun to be with. Um, there are loads of people in Parliament that are a lot of fun to be with. On both sides of the House, she just sounds a little bit dour. Uh, any other questions for Mr James Cleverley? This lady here. Yeah, yeah. You say that we don't get our message across, but is it that partly because the media is it the media? The media don't want to listen to you, media. James? The media. Well, look, you've got to make it compelling. You've got to, you've got to, sell, you've got to sell something that they, they want to cover. Um, I, I can't remember who said it. It might, might, have, been, um, it might have been Lord Tebbit. He said, you know, politicians moaning about the media are like farmers moaning about the weather. It is what it is. We would all like to get more sympathetic media coverage than we get. The bottom line is we've got to give them something really punchy to... Uh, to, to, to talk about um, and, um, and increasingly now of course with social media there is an opportunity to have a much more direct conversation with uh, the, the British public so um, you could be right I don't tend to spend that much time thinking about whether the media is on side or, or not because frankly whether they are or not is out of my hands uh, Gentleman there So um, James if there was a I don't think I don't think it should be a discrete role. I think it should be absolutely core to 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 everything to everything that we do. Uh, I, th I, th I think one of the uh, I think it's interesting that I seem to have got a bit of a reputation and I've got a bit of exposure because I like to think that uh, it's because I'm vocal. I like to you know have a pop at Labour and I like to champion the stuff that we do. That should not make me unusual as an MP. That's, that should not be something that sets you apart from everybody. And there are, you know, I, I, I work with an amazingly articulate and smart and clever bunch of people. And I think we should all be doing it all the time. And occasionally you will have a misstep. But I think that people will be much more forgiving. People are much more forgiving than we give them credit for. And they will, they will allow you to have a couple of missteps if what you're also offering is you know, a really interesting and engaging conversation. So I think we should all be doing it all the time. Yeah. Any other questions? Gentlemen. Which cabinet post would you be putting your name in? Which cabinet post would you put your name in? I love the idea. I love the idea that it's a bit, it's, it's, it's like, um, 
It's like a menu choice. You know. It's the, uh, uh, thank you. Can I, can I mix and match between the a la carte and the, uh, I'll have... Uh, extra for Gifford, yeah. That's right. I'll have uh, maybe a home office to start and... Is the defence good? Is the defence good? Would chef, would chef recommend defence? Um, yeah, look, I'd, 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 in the same way that I'd bite your hand off if I was given the opportunity to be a PM, if someone offered me the opportunity to be... Uh, a, a ministerial post anywhere I'd buy their hand off because I think we've got a duty to serve and um, it's a great job you know I've got a great job a ba- on one level you could say you know a backbench MP is, is, is the worst job in politics it's still a brilliant job you know and, and so anything any opportunity uh, to be useful uh, I would I'd be happy to serve as you've said James is uh, social media is often on point I wonder if you've seen Sajid Javid's uh, post conference photo with the towel. Does he have any plans to stop it? <laughs> I, have to show me, show me. I think, it's, yeah, Sajid Javid's photo with the towel. He's not just wearing a towel. Oh, right. <laughs> he's, he's, got, he's just got, oh. he's just got a towel around his neck whilst being fully clothed. So it's not, it's oh. no Johnny Mercer, mate. Yeah, I was about to say, you had me, you lost, I thought, I yeah. thought Sajid with the towel. Sorry. Just the towel. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, that's good. It's got that kind of, it's got that, you know, like boxer just come back from the boxing gym kind of look about it. I think that's uh, fully dressed. A fully dressed boxer just coming back from a, a boxer wearing a business shirt just coming. Again, not a boxer, but <laughs> a bloke with a shirt and a towel. Is that a thing now? I, I don't think it's going to be no. no. Uh, I might, I might, I might, I might, I might riff on that. I might just adapt it a bit. Maybe not so much with a towel. Shirt. <laughs> <laughs> or it was Sajid, it would be me. Uh, Let's get another question. This lady here. Questions: What can we do to help more women get involved in politics? The point uh, in my answer, I was going to touch on the point that, that you said there about abuse, because without a shadow of a doubt, women get a lot more, and it's a lot nastier than than men. Both digital abuse, and although it wasn't as bad as when we were in Manchester last time, um, I had a number of I, I, I had a number of female friends who were on the verge of tears coming into Manchester conference last time round because of you know, rape threats and that kind of stuff, shouted, shouted at them as they came in. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, being you know, a 17-stone former rugby-playing soldier, I didn't get quite so many of the violent threats. And there is a definite misogynistic streak. I am going to blame the left. It's, it's particularly prevalent in the left. Um, and I think what we, need to, what we need to do is, as a party, um, show that... That we definitely don't tolerate that within, the, within, our own, within our own party, and actually, I think we've pretty much done that. I don't, I don't get that kind of vibe at all from within the Conservative Party. But I also uh, think that we need to, um, we just need to get right on the front foot about this, and I think we need to, um, we need to, I think, show that women are uh, um, taken seriously. Not, not welcome. That sounds a little bit condescending, but taken seriously. And one of the things that I absolutely love is that, you know, of our great offices of state, we've got a female prime minister and a female home secretary. 
And we don't even really make a thing of it. It's just so not really a thing. That's the, that's the sweet spot. When it's just unremarkable that the country has got women in a number of the top, top roles. Um, and it's just the most natural thing in the world. And we've got to keep pushing that. Yeah. At the end of that, thank you very much, James, for coming down to Spanish for time. Thank you very much for coming down. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.